I'm Michaela Lieberman. And I'm Jeff Bellin. Welcome to Office Hours. So today on the podcast, we have Professor Allie Larson, Allison Larson, on the podcast uh, by Broad Demand. Broad Demand. Yes, everyone wanted to hear from Professor Larson, That's so we right. brought her on. That's right. Professor Bellin made a good point, which is when your ratings are low, get Larson in. Right. It's like our quick fix. That's right. Not, th- not saying our ratings are low. No, they're not low. They're just... But could, they could be higher. They could, there are people that have not heard the podcast. Yeah. And that's on you, get, listeners. Yeah, get, the, get those people Get those to people to listen. Right. And you'll see that this episode will make it worthwhile. They, uh, they'll see a, a really interesting uh, scholar, mm-hmm. very popular teacher, mm-hmm. and a delightful person. Yeah. Although about it does sound at. like she's got some rage issues. She mentioned the rage issues, which is kind of news to me. I hadn't seen this, but mm-hmm. she claims to have a bit of a temper problem. Mm-hmm. So but when I heard that she was coming on, I actually tried to take the podcast off, as Michaela pointed out. And I was just trying to kind of sit in the background and let her go to work, but they kept trying to bring me in. And so you'll see that the podcast is kind of colored by me having to chime in against my will every once in a while. That's right. Maybe this isn't such a good gig for you <laughs> if chiming in against right. your we're will looking, is what happens. We're looking for guests and replacements, so <laughs> just let us know. Professor Larson, welcome to Office Hours. Thank you for having me. We are so excited to have you here. Sure. Okay, I could use a little more enthusiasm <laughs> from you, <laughs> Professor Bell. I'm waiting. I'm waiting to weigh in. I'm, I wanted to be anonymous until I see how it goes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, we're really excited. I know the law school community is really excited. Those, the ten of them who listen, are really excited <laughs> to have you here because you're a treasure. Oh. People love you, and it's well-deserved. This oh. is how we start. We like to butter yeah. you up, yeah, <laughs> get actually, you comfortable. What are you going to ask out of me? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I was hoping to be asked, and then I, I wasn't, right. you know, I was waiting, and then when you asked me, I responded right away, and then I thought, that's not very cool. We should no. wait no. 24 hours. There's a lot of analytics involved. I need to play hard to get. Yeah, well, I'll see no. if I can fit you in Too my late. schedule. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> You're here now. Exactly, we're so glad. <laughs> Professor Larson, I have been lucky enough to have you in a number of classes. Professor Bellin, I understand, is a friend of yours. And he's my coach. And he's your coach. That's right. Explain that. Like a life <laughs> in, coach? In the basketball <laughs> game, the faculty-student basketball game. That's right. In the faculty-student basketball game, which is a great fundraiser for the Public Service Fund. So go to that, unless this podcast comes out <laughs> before. And it does. Yes, go to that last Friday. Go to that last Friday. <laughs> yes. Um, so he's friend and coach to you. But, you know, some of our listeners may not have had the privilege of having you in class. So we want to get to know you. Tell us a little bit about Allie or Larson. Well, she's a law professor at William Mary. She hasn't really left the state of Virginia. She went here for undergrad, and then she went to UVA, and she was born and raised in Charlottesville, Uh so really likes to stay local, um, teach con law and ad law and statutory interpretation, and really loves it here. I like the best job in the world. She she does. That that comes up a lot. She really likes William and Mary. I do. I have a lot of tribe pride. Right. More than you have to, like as a professional matter. She's right. beyond the kind of like I work here, so I like it. It's right. She loves. She loves the place. Uh. My, my blood runs green and gold. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So you grew up in Charlottesville. Let me ask you this: Were you always very cool? <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm not cool now. Like, okay, you're very cool now. But I will. I, I will say I do think that like law school. It, it changes the baseline of yeah. cool, right? Low, low Your, the threshold is a little different. <laughs> but so my question is, like, what were you like in high school? Well, 
so you'll like this. Uh-huh. I I was an aspiring actress, believe it or not. I was the president I of the Thespians. Oh, that's incredible. <laughs> okay. Um. Yes. Yeah, so all struggling actresses lead to uh, law school. Law school. Yeah. <laughs> uh huh. Uh huh. Um. No, I I was um kind of dorky in high school, but but like dorky in a way that like you were also the star of a rom com. <laughs> like you know when everyone's like, oh, I was dorky, but it's like no, you weren't. Everybody loved you. Um, How many times you go to prom? Oh, I went to prom every year. Of course you did. <laughs> what, but was it a seniors only prom? Um, no, it was seniors and juniors. And you went every year. No, See, I didn't go every year. I only, just let the record reflect, I only went three years. <laughs> I went three years, too. Felon, how many times this did you go to prom? This is why I didn't want to commit to the conversation right at the outset. You knew what would happen. Did she write down on your piece of paper, did she go to, when did she go to prom? That's like a, a I typed pre, it in, yeah. A pre-planned that's a, question. It's a pre-planned question. Wow. <laughs> but I'd actually, I didn't ask, I didn't plan to ask you, Felon, how many times did you go to prom? No, I don't have to answer questions. Yes, you do. How many, were, were you, were I went you to prom, you know, the requisite amount of prom is what I went yeah. to. So you're very cool in high school. No, no, that's not what I said. That's what it's. That's how I interpreted yeah. it. That's right. And then you go to William and Mary, and you major in English, right? Yes, English and psychology. Did you always know you wanted to go to law school? No. Th- so this is a true story. I wanted to be the a dean of admissions. So I worked a lot in the admissions office here. I was an intern and a tour guide, and I applied to the University of Maryland to get my uh, master's in higher ed, and I didn't get in. And <laughs> I was lost. <laughs> But I mean, thank goodness, thank goodness, right? Because then I ended up, I took a job as a paralegal in the DOJ just so I could live with my best friends in D.C. Mm -hmm. And that's where I discovered I loved the law, and that's when I went to law school. But, I mean, it all came from a failed application to the University of Maryland. That's wow. really what, what brought me here today. Oh, my gosh. Well, <laughs> I bet they're reeling from this. I can't wait till they hear the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then you go to law school after your time at the DOJ. What department did you – like? What I was what, in the Office of Consumer Litigation. So they do both criminal and civil work. Mm-hmm. And um, I, it's really kind of a neat opportunity to be a paralegal at the DOJ because – they don't have a lot of attorneys, so you end up doing more work than you might at a private firm. And that's where I first, my first person to sit me down and say, so there are state courts and federal courts, and there's federal law and state law. I mean, I didn't know any of that. I learned it all on the job as a paralegal. Mm-hmm. It's pretty neat. Then you go to UVA Law, and you enjoy it. I, yes, I loved law school. I, I was one of those. So the dorkiness continues. Perhaps that's a theme. And I just didn't want to leave law school, and that's a sign you should be a law professor because – they pay me to stay in law school now, which is a, a pretty good oh, gig. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, you have to stand. You don't yeah. get to sit down anymore in the class. Right. But other than that, it's a pretty, pretty sweet job. But after you go to law school, you clerk. You spend a number of years clerking. So right. tell us a little bit about that. So I clerked for two judges and, or justices. I clerked for Judge Wilkinson on the Fourth Circuit, and he sits in Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. So once again, I didn't go very far from home. And then I clerked for Justice Souter on the Supreme Court. And I did live in DuPont Circle that year, so I don't I don't have a perfect record of living in Virginia, but we'll forgive you. Okay, <laughs> and um, those are tremendous experiences and um, you know life changing experiences, and I feel really lucky to have had them. And then I practiced law for a couple years after that, and that's when we I decided to go in the teaching market. But I always knew after law school, I always knew that I had a dream of being a law professor. It was just a, about whether or not I, I could get there. Mm-hmm. Do you know you're the second person we've had on the podcast who went to UVA and clerked for the Supreme Court? Do you know who the first one Would it be James Stern? No. Nope. We haven't had him on the podcast. Oh. <laughs> but Professor Stern, get in touch. <laughs> <laughs> Who's nope. the other one? It's Taylor Reedley. Oh, yeah, that's right. 
Taylor Reed President W. Taylor Reedley. And it was it sounded quite uh, quite interesting. But it was I was amazed at how much responsibility the law clerks have. And yeah. So um, there's four there are four law clerks per justice. That's true today also. Um, but you often have these nine clerk meetings where mm. the clerk assigned to each case, they meet in a separate room and here's what my boss thinks, here's what you know, what does your boss think? Do you think we could meet in the middle? Almost like an ambassador or negotiator. Interesting. Um, which surprised me. I didn't know that that would be part of the role of a law clerk. Huh. And Justice Souter always, he wanted to know what the others were. He didn't want me really putting a lot out there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he wanted me bringing information back. Yeah. He's like, yeah. Yeah. How did you do in that role? That doesn't seem like a natural well, role for so you. Well, so he was a smart man, and he would have us um, give do our bench memo with him on the night before the um, argument. So all the meetings happened before that. So I uh. would say... I don't know what Justice Souter thinks because mm. I haven't had my meeting with him yet. Even if I did know, I would Smart. say that. So right. I had some. But here, what, what does your boss think? Yeah. <laughs> See, this is where the acting comes in. <laughs> right. It was yeah. training all along. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but it's, so it's a surreal thing because surreal, not surreal. It's a surreal, <laughs> surreal thing because you're there for a year. And during that year, you kind of become part of the fabric of the institution. So you go to work in the same building every day and you walk down the hallway and there's Justice Thomas or there's Justice Scalia and you you know you take your shoes off in your office and you run into Justice Souter when you're going to get a cup of tea. That happened to me every day. Mm-hmm. And you don't really think about how weird it is that that's going mm-hmm. on. Right. Uh, and then it's only after you leave and you look back on it, you're like, oh, that's a weird thing for that year of my life. I like <laughs> parked and walked in next to, you know, hey, Tony, what's up, Justice? That's, that's a weird, I never called him Tony. Yeah. Also, you realize how great they are as people and how they have relationships with each other. Mm. So they're more than just an institution. There's nine people that work together every mm-hmm. day pretty closely, and they have these ongoing relationships. And the law clerks come and go, and so there'll be these issues where it's like, you know, the first time we're talking about it as a law clerk class, but the justices have been here before. You know, totally. they, they have their territory already staked out. Um, so you do get a great insight into how that institution works. Do you get the sense that the justices like feel as though they're independent of politics? I do. I think they feel that way. I know. I hear you, Neil Devins. I know that not everybody agrees, but the justices feel that way. They do not feel like they are engaged in politics. And we know that you have some new scholarship coming out. Yes. So tell us a little bit about this Recent article, Constitutional Law in an Age of Alternative Facts. Right. So this is my um, most recent piece, and it's it comes out of a series of observations I've made before about how facty Supreme Court decisions have become. And, and that's a term you've coined. Yeah. It's not a real word. Um, well, you've made it. <laughs> I'm going to continue using it, but it's not a real word. It just um, So when you read an opinion in the U.S. reports, you're quickly going to come across citations to um, journal articles or statistical studies or social science um, and that's what I mean by facty so they anchor their legal conclusions and their normative commitments in these claims of fact so this paper is about what happens in a world like that when facts are become very easy to manipulate and I actually came up with the idea when I was abroad because um, not all countries have such a facty constitutional hmm. law and when I was in England, I gave these little talks, and I would say, oh, you know how it is when your country, you know, your Supreme Court starts talking about neuroscience, and they look at me like, no, we don't know <laughs> what you're talking about, and also that's really weird and American. <laughs> so that's, that was a useful, um, I guess, a wake-up call for me to realize that this is, this is a feature of our um, 
legal system that's not inevitable and is perhaps um, sub- subjects it to making us vulnerable. Like it makes us vulnerable hmm. in a way that I hadn't really sat with before. So that's what the paper's about. It's a combination of a facty constitutional law and an environment where facts are easy to manipulate. And do you see this as a change uh, over prior? So I think it's, um, I break it into the paper into this what is kind of new and what is really new, which are um, also very uh, technical terms, but I don't think it's drum- like a completely change, a complete change. So there's been facty opinions for a long time. Um, but I think it's a difference in degree. So I think they're becoming <laughs> factier, mm-hmm. uh, more anchored in factual authorities. And the real change, and other people have documented this, is a change in the um, the citations to authorities for these statements. So instead of like a bald, abortion is hard on women, um, it's a statement that's an anchored with studies sort of buttressing that point. And that is a change. Maybe they're reacting to a perception that they're being political and then so trying to say, oh, no, I'm not just saying this. This is a fact. I a think fact-y. that's exactly what's happening. And, and that's something I noticed abroad, too. Is So in the U.K., judges are seen as very independent and they're protected from criticism in the press. And I was over there for the Brexit decision, hmm. um, so both the decision and then the, the UK Supreme Court decision on about it in November. And everyone reacted pretty strongly to that and then the law professors were like, oh, this is ghastly, you know. It's like, can you imagine just subjecting judges to such criticism? And again, I'm thinking, uh, yeah, I can totally imagine that. We do that all the time. <laughs> yeah. So then I started um, having the observation that, that you make, Jeff. Well, maybe we're using these factual assertions as a shield mm. to protect us from, uh, we being the judges, to protect us from being called political. Mm-hmm. Don't blame me. I'm just calling the facts, right? right. It's just, I'm just calling balls and strikes. Um, but uh, again, as I've said in some of my other work, some of the factual claims they make, or they dress them up in facts, but they're 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 normative assertions or um, just changes in law. Yeah. But they have the effect of they they are dressed up to look facty. Right. And so, how do we tell the difference? Yeah. Well, so the difference between law and fact, that's a debate people have had for years and years, and some people say there is no difference. Um, I actually have a funny story about that. The first time I wrote a paper about facts, I uh, I got trapped in this kind of whirlpool where I was thinking about the difference between law and fact and is there a difference? And um, it was my husband, Drew, who kind of pulled me out of it. He was like, you know, academics can debate forever about whether there's a difference between law and fact, but real lawyers know it when they see it. <laughs> so I decided from then on that I would have a working definition of fact where I just took characteristics of what makes a statement facty. So it can be falsified with a degree of detached certainty, and it's followed by some type of evidence. Mm. And that's my working definition of a fact as compared to a legal uh, a legal statement or a normative statement. And it's not a perfect definition, um, so it wouldn't resolve that debate, mm-hmm. but it, it does, it, it's a distinction that does a lot of work on the, in the easier cases. And so what is the thing that you're worried about? Like, what's going on that you feel like it's a problem? Um, well, the, the current paper is about, I mean, lies. So alternative okay. facts by which I mean convenient statements of reality that are not true. Um, and the paper talks about how easy it is for these statements to become um, legitimate. So they're shared easily, um, and then because of these echo chambers that we live in on social media, we only believe the facts that are shared by people we trust. So then you're you're having this my team, your team factual um, free-for-all where I only believe what my friends believe, and I 
distrust anything that someone who has an opposite normative commitment believes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what happens in constitutional law is your constitutional claims are anchored into these my team, your team facts. Got it. So, Absolutely. yes. So legislative fact is a funny phrase because it sounds like it means facts the legislature found. Mm-hmm. But it's not what it means. It actually means any kind of fact that's related to the legislative function so Mm. a policy related fact Mm -hmm. so you can imagine any generalized fact about the way the world works right so uh do violent video games impact a child's brain and make them tend to act in more violent ways that's a legislative fact Mm -hmm. not because it's found by california or legislature but because it's a fact about the world that we use um when determining how the law should should regulate the world so um what I'm afraid about in this paper is legislative facts of that sort, whether they're found by a legislature or not, you know, being being manipulated. Right. So um, there's six states that say um, abortion causes breast cancer, and there's no medical evidence to assert. In fact, the the National Cancer Institute has disclaimed it entirely. So that's an example of what I would say is an alternative fact that has affected constitutional rights. And the other part of the paper is sort of talks about how these facts get to the court. Yeah. Um, and used, it's not just through experts at trial. It also, you know, these amicus briefs, they right. come in. And how are amicus briefs more problematic than experts at trial? Well, so they don't go through adversarial testing. Right. Um, and there's also, it's like a whole cottage industry of amicus brief writing that's different from how it was in the past. So back to your question about is this new? It's just a new to a, a crazy degree. So 800% increase over the past 50 years, the number of briefs that are filed at the court. And my concern is that the justices are going to just pick the brief that confirms their pre-existing worldview. And so they look for the my team, your team facts right. that will readily support whatever normative commitment they've already made. Um, which means I guess the nightmare scenario is that you have a law that's detached from reality. And then I guess people can cite now, once the Supreme Court uses one of these facties, then the other people can cite it as coming from the Supreme Court. Well, the Supreme Court said X. And that does happen. Right. So I wrote this old paper called Factual Precedents, mm-hmm. where I looked at Supreme Court statements of fact that travel outside the U.S. reports into the lower court opinions. So the, my favorite example is there's a statement that Justice O'Connor made about carpal tunnel and whether it can resolve on its own without surgery. Mm. Um, and she sort of says it as an aside. But then it's picked up and use, like it's used as what do you say the truth of the matter asserted isn't that like oh, an sure. evidence? Like you being evidence. The yeah, evidence community. <laughs> the evidence right. community. Right. It's used for the truth of the matter asserted okay. in lower courts. It's just like yeah, Justice O'Connor says carpal tunnel resolves right. without surgery. I'm right. like, well, how does court. she know? Yeah. We yeah. love her, but not sure she's an totally. expert on that. Right. <laughs> so yeah, that's the power. The power of the facty. Yeah. The factiness. Another piece of this is the increasing sophistication of litigants and their lawyers. You read the article. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> what can I say? Yeah. So that's so I talk about what's changed, and part of it is an information technology story. But the other part of the story is the way these cases are litigated. So um, advocates have become much more sophisticated at growing the factual dimensions of their case. So they do it at trial, but they also do it through amicus briefs. And they know, like the justices are hungry to... They're hungry to hear a case. They're hungry that they need to know these sort of factual questions. They think they need to know them. Right. So you're hip to this as a lawyer, and you grow the facts necessary 
to the conclusion that you want reached. And I think that unregulated, that can be dangerous. Yeah, what's interesting is that if you think of an adversary, like a lawyer doing that, it doesn't seem objectionable at all, right? That's what you're doing. You're kind of serving your client. You're trying to build a record that supports your client. It's the judges kind of buying into it that is the problem. Well, just outside the record is what makes me nervous. So when the process sort of has evolved to supplant the record. Yeah, well, the judges could just not accept that, right? So if you just put your fact in an amicus brief and it's not vetted, they could say, well, I can't cite that. It's just someone's amicus brief. That's right, but then they do. They like it. They like the amicus brief. Yeah, so that was my next question is, what's the temperature on the bench? Are they feeling manipulated by these facts? Are they giving in? I think, so the judges I've spoken to are lower court judges um, feel the danger acutely. So they definitely think, no, we should stick to the record, or they're worried about being manipulated. Uh, I have not spoken to any Supreme Court justices about this, but I would imagine that the sense is different at the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court serves a function as unique from any other court in the country. And because they're answering questions that transcend this case before them, so more legislative-like questions, yeah. they probably feel more... Um, I get more freer. They feel more yeah. like it's a, it's okay, acceptable well, and, and for and them. And no one is watching them, right? So that you're freer because no yeah. one can reverse your. And I'm not sure that's a good feeling. No, uh, but I that's mean, I think that's probably what they yeah, would my, say. My experience mm-hmm. with lower courts is they're very conscious of this idea that there's a trial court that fac- finds facts, and there's an appellate court that has to deal with just the record. And and that's what that makes sense with what you're saying. The lower courts, that's what they do every day. They say, oh, this is out of our. You know, this is in my region. I do this. I'm a trial court or in an appeals court. I can't do that because that's a fact that was found by the trial court, and I'm stuck with that. And at the Supreme Court, it's more like anything goes. And I don't know if it's just a function of it or it's like you do what you can get away with, and the, the higher courts well, can do that. That's why in the paper I ended up following your advice, Jeff. Excellent. Uh, yeah, so I put more faith in the lower court oh, judges, um, and I think it's because y- they can really use the levers of the adversarial system to test to these facts Interesting. in a way that perhaps appellate courts – can't or don't um, tend to do. What's the solution? Are we relying on lower courts to to vet these facts? I was just so I think I've been I've put a lot of thought into this, and I'm not positive I have the absolute perfect solution. But my first suggestion is to change the standard of review a little bit, so that hmm. when a lower court does some sort of nitty gritty fact checking work, mm-hmm. which is not glamorous and takes a lot of time that that is rewarded on the standard of review. So not with absolute deference, but with some sort of deference from the appellate court. Um, And the reason for this is I think just the nature of litigation gives more time to the trial court. And um, this phrase I borrowed from our own Fred Led, uh, there's a procedural skeleton already in place for the trial courts to be able to do this. So they can appoint a special master or they can ha- have a court-appointed expert. So there's ways to deal with alternative facts that's that already are at the fingertips of the lower court judges. So I guess I put more more faith in them, and maybe that's, you know, not it's not going to be perfect. It's not going right. to result in good in a good outcome in every case. But somebody's got to be the grown-up. Yeah. All right. Did we want to switch gears and, and talk about the the exciting? Um, Mueller investigation? Is that what we're going to do? I'd or love no? for you to ask. Yeah, go I ahead. don't, you know, I don't follow it, so I don't know too much about yeah, it. I heard, I heard that there's an investigation. Of there's some an kind. investigation. So, yeah. so let's ask Professor Larson yeah. to weigh in. Professor Larson, what what's, what's going, going on? What, with is, the what is Mueller up to? Investigation. Um, well, I don't know what he's what he's up to, but I can tell you that like part of the controversy is the fact that he's a special investigator instead of a typical prosecutor, and this is um, relevant to 
the Ken Starr. Um, do you remember Ken Starr? Of yeah, course. like the Ken Starr debates. But that was pursuant to a statute right. that made him independent counsel, and this is pursuant to a reg. So it's a regulation. Right, then didn't they abolish the statute? Well, after? it just it it sunsetted. Yeah, so they didn't renew it. Right. Um, but this one was passed in the '90s. This the current regulation, which protects r- protects Mueller from being fired except for good cause, and s- sort of specifies his role and how it should be independent from the attorney general. And some of the controversy is, well, how can you have a prosecutor in the executive department mm-hmm. who is not under, who is not accountable to the president? That seems like a um, violation of the separation of powers or infringing his Article II power. But then other people say, uh, you know, the reason we had that special counsel statute was after Watergate, and there's this um, fear that Ethics and Government Act was the name of the statute. There's a fear that we will have high-ranking government officials without any accountability, and we need a watchdog. Mm-hmm. Um, and this regulation was written sort of to accomplish, to balance those whose interests, to be able to provide a watchdog but not have someone who's completely unaccountable. And it is interesting because, you know, I'm, I'm, fa- I'm not remembering as well as I once knew the Ken Starr investigation, but uh, this one is only triggered because the Department of Justice under this president actually triggered it. Exactly. Which is different, I think, from the way the Ken Starr Yeah, the, the Ken Starr statute was is like an interbranch kind of, oh, you can't see me, but I'm, do, I'm using my fingers to create a triangle. Uh, so you had an appointment from a judicial branch, but it had to be recommended from um, the attorney general who had gotten uh, a tip from the House of Representatives. So it was much more it was like a mush of the three branches. Right. And this one is m- is within the DOJ. It makes it particularly interesting because, of course, Attorney General Jeff Sessions is recused. So that also makes it seem um, like it's further removed from the highest ranks of the political um, Yeah, so executive. what does that mean? So is your take that this is actually independent, so they couldn't actually fire the investigators? Could he fire him? Um, so I think there are a couple of options. I think it's pretty clear he could rewrite the regulation because it's an so a DOJ, the, the, the president, um, okay. right? Well, or the, the acting attorney general, general yeah. right? Um, uh, which in this case would be Rosenstein, right? Not, uh, not Sessions. But that would require notice and comment. So the regulation was passed with notice and comment. So to rescind it, you'd have to go through notice and comment. Okay. So that's one. I think it's possible, but I think it's, um, it's not likely because it's going to take a lot of time. It's kind mm-hmm. of expensive. Mm-hmm. So I think the other possibility is the president says, regulation, smegulation, it's an unconstitutional regulation, so I'm going to go ahead and fire him. I think that's more likely, and then we'll have a debate on whether or not this reg is constitutional. And that'll be a debate about the scope of Article Two and the scope of executive power, um, and it, that should be interesting. It'll also be interesting because the people who were pro-executive power under President Obama will all of a sudden wear a different hat. That's right. And vice versa. That's yeah. good for the goose. <laughs> exactly. Good for the gander. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And what about, so to me, looming in the background is the pardon power. And I, I don't see why it, that doesn't resolve kind of most of this in the sense that the president could just pardon people. He could kind of let the investigation keep going, but just pardon everybody who comes into its sights, including himself. What do you think of that? Yeah, what do I think of that? I mean, well, what I've read, again, in the, in the social media echo chamber in which I live. <laughs> uh, right, what are the facts? Yeah. <laughs> what I've read is that um, because th- if, if the special counsel, or counsel is working with the New York attorney general, for example, um, then any information that they share, if it was part of a state indictment, 
that would not be pardonable. Yeah, so he can't pardon. So for he can't state pardon offenses. for state offenses. Yeah. So that's one answer. Um, I don't know if he can pardon himself. I don't think the text of the Constitution tells us one way or the other. I think it's clear he could pardon high-ranking officials. Um, but there will be another fight about that. I also right. don't know if he could be indicted. So we, we've debated that in constitutional law. Yeah. Um, the Constitution silent on that. Mm -hmm. uh, and particularly given um, it, it will all go down to another fight about executive power. And just in that case, right. like if you could indict a sitting president, would you always have a president sort of sitting at the mercy of mm -hmm. whoever whoever has the power to indict him. Yeah. We have like Monday morning morning quarterbacking yeah. to especially unhealthy if you, degree. If you open it up to the states, like you're suggesting, yeah. you know, we have California, exactly. Or New York they don't like right. the president, and they're indicting him for things that are questionable. And like there could be long term consequences that we are not even thinking about that are you know post date a Trump administration. Sure. The and so just just um, not a quick fix any of these things right this is going to no. be a long drawn out process of uh, all the way up to the supreme court probably whatever happens and then they will find an amicus brief that tells them what my other question is would you like to play a game Maybe does it involve pie or basketball <laughs> Oh, we should talk about the pieting contest. I thought you had a salient. Uh, so Michaela is the host. I of know the she's the MC. Contest. Yeah. And I've watched it for. A g I I have not participated, but I've watched it. I'm a, I'm a ex. I had a bad year. I don't want to get uh, into well it, but it was I bad. Wanna, I want to talk about that. Great uh, year. You did great. So I got blueberries up my nose. Did well you? Well, it was personally so yeah. a bad experience. <laughs> every year I watch the pieting contest, and I've had I felt what you finally brought out at this last <laughs> one, which was that Kern Shearer and Larson were not performing the pieting contest the way a pieting contest is designed to be. Well, there's a material word in there, which is eating. And, uh, you know, look, I, I got <laughs> the blueberry up my nose, and then I couldn't breathe, and she was kind enough to help right. me. And there were like, no paper it was towels. Like a, like a pie proximity contest that you're <laughs> yeah. involved in. But I got blueberry stuck in yeah, my so eyelashes, so I did I, that I, for the I call. Yeah. <laughs> and you sit on the sidelines, and you have no, Yeah, wait a minute. But yeah. But yeah. No, but I, See, I, you put a blueberry I, up your what nose, Bill. I didn't is that an option was <laughs> to sit on the sidelines and be in the contest, which is what seems to be a possibility. So maybe I'll take that up next time. Next year. Right. <laughs> this is a game Michaela invented, but during the podcast, I had to fill in all the, the uh, questions. So, I, so tell her the game while I get ready to say the, the things. The game is fact or facty. Okay, got and it. And you get to decide which is which. Okay. Right. And like all our games, though, you can't take a long time to think about it. Okay. Are you right? So wait, do you mean facty as in like not true, alternative fact? Yeah, like okay. you're, or like is there room for debate? Room that for debate. That kind of thing. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. First one is... The Earth is round. Fact. Fast. That's okay, good. good. I like that. All right. Second, William and Mary is the country's oldest law school. Oldest chartered. <laughs> you can't change. Oh, it. oh, oh! I see. Oh, so fact E. Interesting. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. Huh. She sells out the alma mater. So yeah. Quickly. No, but wow. it's the oldest charter. That's the difference. Look, do you remember I said I was a tour guide? <laughs> <laughs> well, this kind of circles back to my question about were you always cool? I'm getting a little, I'm getting a, a little sense. Seriously. Okay. You can imagine. No, um, no. Gosh, yeah. what a hall monitor <laughs> we got. The poor, the poor visiting student is like, wait a minute, did you say it's it's the oldest law school? The oldest <laughs> chartered law school. If you could just sign this disclaimer while you go on your tour. Oh, All interesting. Right, so I don't even okay. understand the distinction you're drawing, but that's not the game, so let's move on. Uh, here's number three. Constitutional law is an important class. Oh, fact, fact, fact. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And this is where we see that everybody has their own fact. That's right. <laughs> All right. 
um, constitutional law is more than just politics. Fact. <laughs> Don't ask Devin's fact. <laughs> I also wanted to play a game um, called Is This a Song Lyric or Something oh, That Appeared in a name. Supreme Court? Oh, that's decision. a good game. Yeah. Okay. okay, ready? Ready. <clears throat> Pure applesauce. I'm going to say Supreme Court. Yeah, that's right. Case, right? Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> up in the club, just broke up. Oh, doing my own that's a thing. song. That's a song. <laughs> Name it for bonus points. <laughs> Say it again. Up in the club, just broke up, doing my own little thing. Why don't? Oh, oh, but it's Beyonce. I can tell by your hand yep. gesture. Okay. Jiggery pokery. Okay, that's that's Supreme Court. You're right. Although that's a good one because that could go either way, I think. Could it in any modern? Well, it's like do, it's sort of like, like do the hokey pokey, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nineteen fifties songs. It's like yeah. the Eric Chasen band. Yeah, exactly. Song, Eric right. Chasen's band covers it. Um, okay, I knew you were trouble when you walked. In. Oh, I knew you. Yeah, that's a song. There you, you were go. trouble. I got that one. When you walked in. So Larson, my last question is: Do you ever get angry? Like, mm-hmm. Are you ever a monster? Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. Oh yeah. Are you perfect? Or yeah. No, I, no, I have kind of a temper. Really? really? Yeah, it's true. Tell ask, us ask more. Girl. Um, well, mm. <laughs> just sorting through which example. Yeah, which can example share? can I use? What's the most recent time you lost your temper? Yeah. Um, so I hate American cheese. You do. Yeah, I really hate American cheese. I love America. Hate American cheese. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when you order a hamburger and you ask for no American cheese, they'll put it on there and then take it off as if you Mm. can't sense the remnants of the Mm -hmm. American cheese. But I can always sense the remnants of the American cheese, and that makes me angry. Interesting. (laughs) You didn't really tell us what happened. So you screamed at someone who made you a sandwich? I might have said, well, and then I said I was allergic to American cheese, which is a lie. It was was not factual. She's an angry liar. Interesting. (laughs) Um, Well, Professor Larson. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's our podcast with Professor Allison Larson. Hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. It's interesting. You know, like the question of fact, there are all sorts of facts that I don't probably subject to the rigor that I should, right? That I don't yeah. vet as well as I should. Yeah, and the, uh, the way that this bleeds over from our debate in society generally into the courts itself. That's right. Yeah. Neat. All right. And next week, we expect to have Professor Tara Grove on the podcast. Is that correct? Yeah. It hasn't been confirmed yet. <laughs> okay. So maybe we News to her. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Professor Grove. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we're going to set up future podcasts. We'll just give you a shout out on the podcast. So make sure you're listening in case you're going to be on. There you go. That's how we get our listeners. All right. So if it's Professor Grove. Great. And if it's not, great. Yeah. It was someone that we Let's be honest. Forgot. You haven't made it all the way to the end of this. You're not <laughs> listening to this right now. Luckily, no one's listening. In <laughs> fact, it's not even clear that I'm here. I think it's, it's not. Yeah. Wit's not listening, right, Wit? Right, right. Thanks uh, to Wit. He's our executive producer. Yes, he handles you, all the technology. Wit Shout out to Wit. All right. So we'll see you soon. So long. So long.